0: Chapter 1, Mishnah 18. This is the final Mishnah of the first chapter. And again, we're continuing with listing the teachings brought down by the Nasiim, by the princes of the Jewish nation, by essentially the Jewish king of the time. Hillel was the first modern prince. And this Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel of our Mishnah is the sixth in line from Hillel. It was Hillel. His son was Shimon. His son was Gamliel. His son was Shimon. His son Gamliel, and his son was Shimon. And this is the Rabban Shimon Megamliel the second. We're going to read the Mishnah and give a little bit of a backstory of who this person is, and then we'll try to understand what the Mishnah is conveyed to us. Rabban Shimon Gamliel Omer, Rabban Shimon Gamliel says, "Al Shlosha Dvarim Ha'olam Kayam." On three things the world endures: Al Hadin, Al HaEmes al-hashalem On justice, on truth, and on peace, Shneimer quotes the verse in the book of Zechariah: "Emes u'mishpat shalom shiftu, b'sharachem." With truth, justice, and peace, judge in your gates. So let's first go through a little bit who this person was and a little bit of the world in which he lived. Rabban Shimon Gamliel is mentioned hundreds of times in the Talmud, and its associated books. And he led the Jewish nation, along with the scholars, the rest of the scholars of the Jewish people, at a very chaotic time in history. These 60 years that we've spoken about in the past, the 60 years spanning from the destruction of the Temple in the year 70 to the Hadronic persecutions of the 130s, are some of the most challenging times in our history. The Jews were living under very harsh, brutal, iron Roman rule. And in addition, our nation was marred by internal inconsistencies, by internal strife, internal fighting. So we were facing like a two-front war. There was like a civil war within. The various factions were fighting over who's going to be in control of the Jewish nation and the Jewish destiny. And from without... Outside of the Jewish nation, they were faced with a very oppressive overlord in the way, in the form of the Romans. So the Romans, of course, destroyed the temple, and that is always presented as the epitome of the destruction of Judea and Jerusalem and the desolation and desecration of much of Jewish life in, this, in, in the seventy. But that really, of course, was an eight-year process, an eight-year war. It was a great revolt, And the Romans systematically eliminated the opposition, town after town, Jewish city after Jewish city, destroying and slaying hundreds of thousands, and culminating with the destroying of the Jewish Temple, which was standing for for what's 420 years. And of course, there was the reverberations of that, famously the last standoff in Masada in the year 73. But even afterwards, the Jewish people spent many many decades trying to rebuild. And to reestablish Jewish life in a way that we could flourish, despite these harsh conditions, and that, of course, was very difficult because the Romans were very keen on keeping the Jews oppressed and suppressed. Now, seventy years later, or sixty years later, uh, the the emperor is Hadrian, and Hadrian becomes the new Antiochus because he institutes very harsh uh, edicts against. Jewish practice. He forbids public Torah study. He forbids the circumcision of young boys. He forbids uh, Shabbos. He forbids the laws of uh, of making the new moon, and making the of regulating the Jewish calendar. He forbids uh, smicha, which is conveyance of rabbinic ordination from teacher to student that was uninterrupted from the times of Moshe, and under these conditions. The Jews suffer terribly, and they suffer so badly, it gets so bad that they decide to revolt anew. And this is, of course, the famed and the fabled Bar Kokhba revolt of the 130s. Bar Kokhba was a great Jewish leader, a great Torah scholar, and a great warrior, and someone that seemed to really check all the boxes, at least in the eyes of Rabbi Akiva, for the Messiah. Rabbi Akiva was convinced this is the Messiah. He was fighting the wars of God. He was gathering and galvanized the Jewish nation to fight back against the Romans, and he was very successful. And he marshaled a guerrilla army that eventually succeeded in actually evicting the Romans from the land. And the Jews established sovereignty over Judea, over Israel. And everyone's convinced that, okay, this is it. We, we're going to rebuild the temple. It's been 60 years since it was destroyed. Let's get, Let's get the construction crews ready. And they even minted coins to celebrate this new king of Israel, Bar Kokhba, which is a symbol in antiquity of, of victory and of might and of stability. But of course, as we know, the history of the Bar revolt is sad, as uh, as many instances of Roman reprisals are. The Romans regathered their forces. And again, they began a systematic conquest, reconquest of Judea, culminating in a standoff of the city of Betar. Betar was a very fortified city in which the Jewish resistance was coalesced. The Romans found the entrance to the city and they slaughtered in both Jewish terms, Jewish numbers and Roman numbers, hundreds of thousands of Jews. The way the Talmud presents this is that, There was so much Jewish blood, rivers of Jewish blood, that the Gentile farmers did not need to fertilize their land for seven years. There was so much, like, fertile Jewish blood and really terrible. Under these conditions, our author of our mission, Rabbi Shem Gamliel, becomes the Nasi of the Jewish people. He was one of the few survivors of the family of the Nasi when the Roman revenge for the Wartokhba revolt happened, and therefore, his father, Rami was the Nasi, and he wasn't even, I don't, I don't know if he was even slated to become the Nasi. He had many brothers, but they were all killed out, and he was like the last remaining, uh, the remaining survivor of this family, and he was hidden. They hid him. The Jewish people knew that this is like the family of King David, the family of Hillel. This is like the family of monarchy of the Jewish people. And therefore, they decided to hide him away so the Romans don't find him. And once things quieted down, they were able to coronate him as the Nasi, as the stand-in for the king. And therefore, there was actually a long period of time where, there was, where the office of the Nasi was vacant. Even though there was a Nazi, technically, but no one knew where he was. The Jewish people did a good job of making sure that he was not touched by the uh, rapacious and bloodthirsty Roman hands. Now, his son is Rabbi Judah the Prince. Is Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel the Prince's son? And he, of course, is going to be the architect of the Mishnah. And in fact, the book that we're studying right now, the Pirkei Avot, is a book of this one of the sixty-three books of the Mishnah that was written under the auspices of the great Rabbi Judah the Prince who was his successor and his son. In fact, there's an interesting story where Rabbi Judah the Prince was born during this time, during the time where circumcision was forbidden. And the Romans heard that there's this Jewish boy who was circumcised. And they said, okay, we we have to inspect this child. If he's circumcised, we're going to throw him off a cliff. That's what they did. So, his mother, she was brought to Rome with her baby to have the officials inspect him to see if he was circumcised. And if he was, they're right away gonna kill him. Along the way, the Talmud tells us an incredible story that along the way, she meets a Roman family and she befriends them. And they start talking about what's going on. And the story is told in the Talmud that she tells this mother with her own baby that, oh, I'm going to, to Rome, to. Uh, they're inspecting the baby to see if he's circumcised, which indeed he was, and if yes, they're going to kill him. So they made a deal, they made a switcheroo. The Roman woman, she took Rabbi Judah the Prince, and Rabbi Judah the Prince's mother carried this Roman baby to Rome, it gets to Rome, we're inspecting the baby to take off the kid's diaper, uncircumcised. You're free to go, ma'am. She goes back. She meets the woman. They do the switcheroo again. That's what the Talmud says. Now, who is this Roman baby? Turns out this Roman baby rises the ranks of Roman hierarchy and becomes the great Marcus Aurelius Antoninus. Moreover, we're told in the Talmud, many instances where Rabbi Judah the prince, who was the leader of the Jewish people, and Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, who was the Roman emperor, were actually good friends and colleagues. And they would study Torah together. And the Talmud goes as far as to say that Marcus Aurelius Antoninus built a tunnel from his palace to the place where Rabbi Judah the Prince was staying in Rome. And he would go every day to study Torah with him in secret. And there are even some opinions that he actually converted to Judaism. And if you go to like the more advanced sources, they say, where did Rabbi Judah the Prince, where did Antoninus have this spiritual strength to be able to study Torah and to be so gracious to the Jews and maybe even convert, well, that came because for a few months or a few weeks of his life, he was with the Holy Mother of Judah the Prince, and she was nursing him, and that kind of that 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 he absorbed her holiness, and that affected him for the, his whole life. The Talmud does record a series of debates that Rabbi Judah the Prince had with Antoninus, and in three of them, Antoninus well, in two of them, Antoninus is able to triumph in his logic and his argument over Rabbi Judah the Prince, and Rabbi Judah the Prince concedes that Antoninus is right, and even announces, this thing I learned from Antoninus, this Dani Antoninus, this thing I learned to studied from the great Antoninus, which is an interesting little historical tidbit. But this kind of shows what kind of life Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, uh, he has to emerge in, and of course, what kind of challenges that faces, uh, what kind of challenges uh, he faced as the leader of the Jewish people, uh, as a result of the very harsh conditions in which he had to lead them. Now it's interesting. His son, Rabbi Judah the Prince, actually lives in this brief respite, this brief time in history where the Roman Emperor is friendly to the Jews, and therefore he's able to write down the Mishnah, a magnificent project, unparalleled in, in scope in um, scope and magnitude throughout Jewish history. Uh, where they're able to co- collect all the opinions of all the rabbis and organize it in a way that is accepted, accepted by all to prevent the Torah from being forgotten, and to have a portable version of oral Torah that can be taken with you when you're fleeing from your Roman invaders. Now, it's also important to stress, and this is one of the one of the most, I guess, shocking stories of Rabbi Shimon Gamaliel's life is uh, the encounter that he had with the two other great rabbis. We'll tell the story, but I think it's important to understand the context of it. Remember, during this time, there are, or at least immediately prior to this time, there are factions amongst the Jewish nation. And according to the Talmud, the reason why the temple was destroyed, the reason why these travesties befell the Jewish nation, was specifically because they didn't have unity. They had disunity, and they had Factionalism and they were fractured and they fought and there's so many different competing voices for the Jewish soul. And therefore, after the temple is destroyed, there are very concerted efforts to bring the Jewish people back together, to reunify. And the family of the Nasi, the family of Rabbi Gamliel, the father of our author, and the, fa- and Rabbi Chumagamil himself, They were very dedicated to the project of bringing the Jews back together under the flag of the Sanhedrin, which is like the Torah leadership, and under the flag of the Nasi, who is the political leadership. And therefore, they even went as far as to stamp out rebellion. They took very harsh steps, or otherwise harsh steps, to make sure that the authority of their office is unchallenged. And, of course, to the cynic, that sounds like, oh, they're just trying to consolidate power. And that's, of course, what the cynic would say. But we know these are great giants of Torah, men of tremendous humility and of of selflessness. And they did it. And we know throughout our history has judged them kindly that they did these things only as a way to ensure that the Jewish nation together will have continuity because they'll be unified. The Talmud gives a very long story about what Rabban Shimon did to try to strengthen the office of the Nasi within the Sanhedrin. And he made a decree that there were three leaders. There was a triumvirate, leading the Jewish people. There was the Avbezdin, which is the head of the Sanhedrin. There was the Chacham, which is the wise man, who was the the most wise, the greatest scholar. And then there was the Nasi. And these were the three leaders. So Rebbe and Shimon decided that when the Nasi enters the hall of all the scholars, everyone has to stand up until he tells them to sit down. And that's a way of showing them honor. When the Chacham enters, everyone that he passes has to stand up and then they sit down right away. When the Avbeis then enters, when the head of the Sanhedrin enters, then one row of either side stand up until he gets down. And that's a way of showing just that there's a hierarchy that there's the Chacham, and then there's the Afezdin, and then there's the Nasi. And that's a way to ensure, again, to cohesiveness. So he makes this announcement, and and, and that's, that's that's what's going to happen from then on. Now, the the two other people, the Chacham and the, the Afezdin, they weren't there when they, they didn't hear about this announcement. So the next day, the Chacham walks in, and all those that are standing next to them stand up, and right away they sit down. And the Avbeis then watches in, and two rows stand up, and then they sit down. And then the Nasi watches in, and everyone stands up, and they're a little bit kind of taken taken aback. Like, what happened over here? Like, what's happening? Suddenly, it seems like there is a preference here to the office of the of the Nasi, as opposed to the Avbeis and the Chacham. Now, who are these people, the Avbeis and Chacham? Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Nassen. of course. Rabbi Meir is uh, the student of Rabbi Akiva. And the teacher of Rabbi Judah the Prince, and also someone that, when there's an anonymous Mishnah, it's Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir was the, the greatest scholar of, of, his, of his time. And he was a little bit disturbed by this. Like, why is the, not Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, also a great Torah sage, also mentioned hundreds of times, but he wasn't Rabbi Meir's stature. So what's happening over here? So they decided, these two people, Rabbi Nasan and Rabbi Meir, the Avbeis and the Chacham, they decided that they're going to get back at him. And they decide that they're going to take the most obscure portion of of Torah, the Book of Utsin. Very obscure laws. Almost no one is an expert in it. This book is always presented as the paragon of the most challenging and the most obscure and the most arcane. And the next day, they're going to pounce on him with a series of questions on the Book of Utsin. And we'll see what he has to say. That's their plan. So there's someone else who's listening and here's this plan. His name is Rabbi Yaakov Ben Korshai. And he decides to save the Nasi from this humiliation. He doesn't want that the house of Hillel is going to be faced in front of everyone. They're going to ask him a question. Tell me, what do you think about this question, Uchsin? So he tries to hint to Rabbi Shem Gamliel to go brush up on his Uchsin before he has to face this test. And... So he starts reviewing the laws of uchsin really loudly. Rabbi Shimon and again goes uchsin, 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 and Rabbi Gamliel gets the hint, and he brushes up on his uchsin. And the next day, Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Nassan, they say, "Okay, we have a question for the Nazi." And everyone hushes down, and they start peppering him with questions on the book of uchsin, and he swats them away. He's he's ready for the test, and he tells them, "You guys tried to embarrass me at my office." Hachutsa. Outside. So the two rabbis go outside. But now, all the scholars are in the room and the two greatest scholars are outside. And they have, they have all these questions. They don't have the answers. So they have to send the questions outside and they get the answers from inside. Everyone's like, what's going on over here? You have the greatest sages outside and we're all inside. So they say, we want to go outside. Rabbi Yossi was present and he asked, is it possible that the Torah is outside and we're inside? So Rabbi Gamil says, are oh, you right? We're going to let them come back in. But... From now on, whenever you quote them, you can't quote them by name. You have to quote them either, Acherim Omrim or Yesh that, Omrim. That was his kind of way of ensuring that they're, that, 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 they, that this mutiny doesn't get too far. That whenever, whenever you're quoting Rabbi Meir's teaching, you say, Acherim. Others say. So way of saying, there's other people that say that, but you don't quote them by name. And Rabbi Nassan, he said, uh, whenever you quote him, Yesh Omrim, there are those that say. And Romanus was appeased, and Ramirez says, I'm, "I'm not, I'm not happy with this," and he moved out to 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 Tiberius. Uh, but this is interesting; like it's an interesting story. And to us, it's very, very easy to be cynical. It's not hard at all to be cynical with the story. It seems like it's very petty. But I think if you understand the context in which this incredibly <laughs> just interesting story uh, happens, uh, it's important for us to understand. Even though these are trivialities, so who cares and who stands? Does it really matter? Of course not. But maybe we could even say that the the, the argument was, okay, everyone agrees that there has to be a unification of the Jewish people. But maybe they're arguing, no, it should be Torah or it should be the Sanhedrin or it should be – who says it should be the Nassim? Maybe that was the argument. Whatever it is, it's important for us not to trivialize but I think it does give us a sense of the flavor of the times, what the concerns were and what the draconian steps were taken to ensure that – Jewish continuity under the flag of Torah is maintained. And indeed, we see this is a period, this middle of the first century onward, from the 130s onward, it's a blossoming of Torah that was unprecedented in its history. The great names, the great individuals, Rabbi Akiva, Ben Azai, uh, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Shimon Ben Yochai, all these great sages that emerged from the time Out of the ashes, out of the despair, out of the destruction, Torah lives to fight another day. And, of course, it's cemented for eternity in history with the writing of the Mishnah that happened during those those centuries. So just an incredible insight into a time in history and a great individual, Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, who was there to ensure that Jews will not be fractured again and will have the ability to withstand the very harsh challenges that they were going to face. Uh, let us begin the Mishnah. So the Mishnah tells us that there's three things upon which the world endures. And if you remember, the second Mishnah of the book says something very similar. The second Mishnah of the first chapter reads, On three things the world depends, or the world stands. And almost all the commentators who try to understand what this present Mishnah is, they try to understand it in light, in the prism of trying to contrast it with the second Mishnah of the book, which talks about the three things upon which the world stands, on Torah, on worship of God, and on kindness. So what is the difference between, or is there a difference between, on the things upon which the world stands, or the things upon which the world endures, or the world continues? So Rabbeinu Yona, the great commentator on Perkreavos, he says something very, I think, very illustrative. He says that the first instance of three things upon the world, Ome, the world stands, the second Mishnah of our chapter, it's those are the things for which the world was created. God had a choice to create the world or not to create the world. There's three themes for which God decided to create the world, and that's Torah, Avoda, gemilas chasadim, Torah, worship of God, and loving kindness. These are the three. These are the goal for the reason why God decided to create the world. However, even after the world was created, says Rabbi Neonah, the world needs continuity, which means God is continually deciding to create and sustain and nourish the world with ongoing vitality. And there has to be a reason why God created the world. Three things of of Mishnah 2. And there's three things as a result of which, in the merit of which, God decides to continue the world, to have the world endure. That's what he says. And what are those three things? The three things of our Mishnah, justice, truth, and peace. So what does this mean? I want to talk about this idea in general. If God decided to create the world because of Torah, Avod, G'melis Chassadim. Why do those things not apply now? Like, if there was a justification for God to create the world found in Mishnah 2, the three things upon which the world stands, Torah, Avod, why does the? why do we have to find three different things that through them, the world has continuity? Why can we say, hey, if there's enough of a reason for God to create the world because of these three things, why is there not enough of the reason for God to continue the world to have continuity in the world after it was created because of those same original three things i heard an amazing insight to to, to explain this uh, from the khassygavists and he gives an example if you want to boil water so you could turn the water the heat onto the highest and then once it's bubbling you can lower the heat and you can put it on a much lower flame and that will maintain the heat that was acquired earlier. Whereas, if you just take cold water, put it in a pot, and put it on the lower heat, it won't reach that boiling point with that low heat, with that low flame. However, if it's already hot, you can maintain the flame with a much lower heat. Whereas to access, to, to get initially the high heat, you need to have the higher flame. similarly, when God decided to create the world, you had to have three major things, Torah, whereas to maintain that, to continue that, once it's already hot, once it's already boiled, even a lesser justification will be needed to maintain that. And this is the insight that he adds. He says that we know when the temple was extant, like we've spoken about in the past, the temple symbolizes a Jewish nation at its acme, completing what it's really brought here to, to accomplish. And therefore, the world was created so that the Jewish nation, as a stand-in for humanity, can do Torah, Avodah, and Gemil However, once the temple was destroyed, there was a degradation of the spiritual stature of the nation, And therefore, that did not apply. And Rabbi Shimon Gamlil, he comes after the temple is destroyed. And he's grappling with the question, now that the Jewish nation and the world as a result is not subsisting by that same heightened stature that was present when the temple was extant, what gives us a right to exist? What gives us a right to ensure that God continues his pledge to keep the world alive? Even now, in a lower spiritual stature, how do we ensure continuity? And he answers that God maintains the existing world as a result of these three things: justice, truth, and peace. And he even adds, these three, justice, truth, and peace, are aspects of Torah, avoda G'mil of Justice, what the Torah is about justice. It's about doing what God considers to be correct. And therefore, justice is, is, is not, it's not Torah, but it's an element of Torah. And truth is an element of worship of God. God's synonym, after all, is truth. And peace, well, that's of course an element of loving kindness. And therefore, what he's essentially saying is that He's justifying our existence by saying the reason why we exist is because we're still maintaining at least the flavor of the original things for which the Torah was created, even the original things for which the world was created, even after the temple was destroyed, which is an interesting way of understanding what he's trying to convey to us. Now, I think zooming out a little bit, what is he saying? He's saying something very fundamental. And I think it's a, it's a pillar of Jewish theological belief. And it's maybe a little bit of a subtlety and something we're not u- we're not used to thinking in, in these terms. What he's saying is that the world was created. Yes, everyone agrees the world was created. But he's saying further, God is involved not only initially Genesis, God sparks Genesis. More than that, God sparked Genesis, but God is continually choosing to give continuity the world stands the world is created for a purpose but the world endures also because god decides that it should endure which means is that this world we believe is that this world and the spiritual the physical the spiritual world they exist simultaneously but we also believe that they are connected Moreover, we believe that they have to be connected and if they're not connected, if the connection is severed between the spiritual world and the physical world, the physical world ceases to exist. And this is a found fundamental belief of, of, of Jewish theology. And the, the easiest example, the easiest analogy is the lamp. You have a lamp and it gives you light. But it only gives you light so long as the plug is plugged in. The second you pull the plug, there's a flow of electrons that are it suddenly stops, and therefore the light turns off. So if I just saw the light, I'll the lights on, the lights on forever. Someone flipped the light on and it's on forever. No. Behind the scenes, there has to be a continuous flow of electricity to it, or else it, it stops. Similarly, God initially kind of flicked the light on in the world, turned it on, but God is still continually, every second, giving life and vitality to this world and making sure that it endures. And that's the question that he's asking. Why is it endure? What merit do we have as a a people? Now that we don't have the temple, we're not living by the highest spiritual status that we had prior. What is it living? Because we're still doing elements of the bit three, of Torah, of of the relationship that man has with himself, which is embodied with Torah, the relationship that man has with God, which is embodied with prayer, and the relationship that that, that man has with his fellow, which is embodied by kindness, we still have elements of those three and that's what allow, what allows us, what gives us the right, what gives us, what, what what encourages God to ensure that he doesn't pull the plug on humanity on this world. There is a prayer that we say every day in the morning prayer. Blessed are Hashem, our God king of the world, who forms light and creates darkness, makes peace and creates everything. And then it continues. Who gives light unto the land and to those who live upon it with, with mercy. And this is the critical line for our purposes. And with his goodness renews every day, always the act of Genesis. What it's telling us is that Genesis is not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. Every day, every moment that God is recreating the world. And as a result, it's not just we have to earn it once, we have to continually earn it. How do we earn it? These three things. And uh, the other books of Jewish theology explain this point, uh, elaborate upon this point. But the Nefesh HaChaim, which is the book written by Rabbi Chaim Velazhner, he begins his book by distinguishing the two differences between God as a creator and man as a creator. We know man could also create, like man, like humans created iPhones. That's the thing that that humans could do. And and tables and chairs and my favorite microphones. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's that's human. So 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 God's a creator and, he, and humans are creators. So what's the difference? There's two essential differences between God as a creator and humans as a creator. Number one, God creates what's called ex nihilo. Yesh Me something out of nothing. Humans, we have to create, but we have to take existing matter and reformulate it. I could take wood and cut it up and make it into a table. But I can't make wood out of thin air or out of nothing. I can't make matter. I could repurpose matter. I could reformulate matter, but I can't make matter. Whereas God creates something out of nothing. That's the first difference. And the second difference is that God's creation. And our creation, the relationship with the creator and the theme that's created for us stops after the creation is done. For God, it continues forever. So the example that we have, like, I make a table. I, I work really hard on the table. I finish it. I sell it or I use it. It's done. It's now, it's just independent of me. Whereas when God creates the world, it cannot be just independent of him. It still relies on him even after creation is somewhat Completed. God creates the world, but God maintains the world. The relationship does not go away. And therefore, and if you, if God removes himself, so to speak, from the world, the world ceases to exist. It still relies on him on an ongoing way. And he, and that's the idea of this Mishnah, that we're told that God is recreating the world every second. Why? In merit of these three things that are related to the three things of the first Mishnah, the reasons why God created the world to begin with. The chapter ends, as all chapters of Perkya Avot end, with a statement from the Talmud. I don't want to read this. This is not really a Mishnah. It's not, it's not the 19th Mishnah. It's not the final Mishnah. But it's a statement that we say at the end of every chapter of Pirkei Avot. I want to read it and just give a little insight from the Rambam from it. Rabbi Hanani ben Akasha Omer, Rabbi Hanani ben Akasha says, Baruch the Almighty wanted to be, to benefit, to merit the Jewish people. Lefidgach, Hirba, Lahem, Torah, umitzvos. Therefore, He increased for them. Torah, umitzvos. He gave us a lot of mitzvos. Shanemar, as the verse says in the book of Isaiah. Hashem, Chafetz, Laman, Siko, Yagdil, Torah, Vyadir. God desired for the sake of Israel's righteousness to make the Torah great and glorious. This statement, which originates in the book of Matkos, in the end of the book of Matkos, about the idea of Torah and mitzvot and why we have so much of it, is said at the end of all six chapters of Purkeh What is this idea that God loves us and God wants our betterment and benefit and therefore gives us a lot of mitzvot? And maybe one could argue that the opposite should be true. If God really loves us, he'd be easy, he'd go easy in us. Give us few mitzvahs. One or two mitzvahs, that's enough. What's this idea that because we have, because God loves us, He gives us so many mitzvahs? That's the question that the Rambam asks. And He says something very foundational. And He even says, like, as a yesode hadas, one of the foundations of our religion is that reward and punishment exist. That's one of the foundations of our religion. In fact, Rambam lists belief in reward and punishment as one of the 13 principles of faith and if you actually look quite deeply in the 13 principles of faith you'll notice that the final four of the 13 principles are related to reward and punishment so it's a bit it's a big deal a big aspect a big component of Jewish faith is the idea of reward and punishment and then he says further if someone does a single mitzvah one mitzvah any one of the six thirteen, one one mitzvah perfectly, without any ulterior motive, just out of love of God, because God told you to do it, that one mitzvah alone can fuel a life of eternity in the afterlife, reward forever. And therefore, God gives us so many mitzvahs because each one of them is an opportunity to unlock eternity. And therefore, He wants for our benefit and for our betterment and therefore, he gives us so many mitzvahs that enable us at least the opportunity, the chance that hopefully we'll do at least one of them over the course of our life perfectly out of love for God and without intention of receiving reward and intention of receiving honor anything ulterior, exterior outside of God. And through that, that will embolden or that will ensure, that will guarantee, that will stamp our golden ticket to eternity through that mitzvah. Maybe we could suggest, uh, why does this appear at the end of every chapter? I think maybe we could suggest, just simply, that listen, we're trying to perfect ourselves. And we're trying to achieve a change within ourselves. That's the goal of these books. It's the it's book of eternal ethics from God. And maybe we could say, is that like, at the end of every chapter, we're reminded that we have so much of this. And there's so much for us to change. We look at ourselves, and we're so imperfect. we got so many blemishes. But... We're reminded that, yes, maybe there's so much to do, but each one of them is a very valuable thing on its own right. And each one of them is is so important, so powerful, that it it could really be enough to inspire and to engender a life of eternity. And therefore, not to neglect all the details because you can't get them all. Right? Don't. Don't say, oh, I can't become the richest person in the world. I won't even try making a living, right? Don't say, I can't do them all. I can't become total. I can't become Moses. I shouldn't even become the best that I can become. Try to become the best that you become in every little thing that we do is supremely valuable.